I'll be reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 25. Beginning at Romans eight fourteen. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes to the hope that you've set before us. And that you would grant to us to see the struggles of this life in light of the glorious inheritance that you've laid up for us in Christ Jesus. We ask this in order that we may be among those who joyfully and eagerly Persevere in godliness until we stand in your presence. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. And may you know God's grace and peace in even fuller measure this new year. Now, we got started late, but beloved, this is a message that I think is very important. This passage is very important. So we may get started with the next segment a little bit uh, later than we normally would. So bear with me. I want to start this morning with a question. And it's a serious question. It's one that warrants some serious consideration. How do you fix it when you know the promises of God regarding what lies ahead and you believe them and yet those promises somehow seem inadequate to give you joy in the here and now. 
You see, there's, there's something seriously wrong with the picture when a believer who is familiar with the promises of God regarding what He has set up for us in eternity to everyone who believes and who actually recognizes that those promises are true, yet finds that they don't really impact his or her life right here and right now. That's a big, big problem because it makes the promises of God of no real value. It makes our faith of no real relevance to the lives that we must live this side of heaven. And you know what the most grievous problem is with disappointed and discouraged Christians? It's that that kind of living makes God out to be a liar. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul declared that our hope of the glory of God, the hope into which we as believers will enter as children of God and fellow heirs with Christ, is a hope that does not disappoint. So why are there so many disappointed Christians? Why are there some in this room today who feel overwhelmed with disappointment, discouragement, fear, perhaps even despair? And how is it that disappointed Christians are supposed to ever become hopeful and joyful this side of heaven if they already know what's true and that truth is insufficient? How are they supposed to live as overcomers instead of so often being overcome by the dismaying conflicts that they face in their relationships with their husbands, their wives, their children, or their parents? How are they supposed to live as overcomers when they face constant struggles in their jobs or with their finances? Or their health? You think that's a question that needs an answer? I certainly do. And I believe Paul answers it right here in this amazing passage. I believe he gives us, he identifies for us the nature of the one true hope that is set before us. He explains the problem that keeps us from experiencing that hope. And he provides for us the solution to move us from disappointment and discouragement to actually, practically experiencing the hope that does not disappoint. A hope that actually fills us instead with a perfectly well-founded optimism that is unthreatened and unshakable, even in the midst of the very worst that we will face in our time on this earth. Here's where we're going this morning. First, in verse 18, Paul declares that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he talks about eager expectation in two realms. First, in the realm of creation. And as he explains that eager expectation, he puts it in the context of what's wrong with creation right now. That creation is presently enslaved to corruption and futility. But then he explains that God has a purpose in the intensity of the curse. We'll talk about that purpose. 
Then he moves from creation to us, and he says our eager expectation, our anxious longing is for our final adoption, our perfect redemption. Finally, in verses 24 and 25, he explains the distinction, very, very important distinction between fake hope and real hope. First, in verse 18... He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. Now that verse ties immediately back to what he just said in verse 17. In verses 16 and 17, he said, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with them in order that we may also be glorified with them. So suffering is inherently part of our experience as heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And the words, for I consider, uh, the, the word I consider comes from the exact same verb that Paul used back in chapter 6, verse 11, when he gave his very first command in this epistle, which was to us, telling us to reckon or consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. And the word means to go through a mental accounting process to steadfastly declare something to be true and then act upon it. We saw last time that suffering is inevitable in the life of the believer. We saw that suffering that we face as children of God is not a threat to us. It's actually a promise. It's a promise that ensures our conformity with God's character and His holiness. I love what John said this morning. As you face this new year, recognize God is a lot more concerned about your holiness than He is your happiness. Apart from participation in the sufferings of Christ, you will not have any practical holiness. It's not possible. Having made it clear that suffering is an indispensable part of our experience as the children of God, Paul then, in this passage, verses 18 to 25, proceeds to put that suffering in eternal perspective. Verse 18 is what I consider to be one of the the great worldview-defining statements in all of Scripture. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. That is a radical challenge to how we're prone to think about both the present and the future. If you put put, put all of our lives on a timeline that starts the day you're born and proceeds into eternity future, that's a very, very long line. And the present is this minuscule dot at the beginning of that line that's that's moving forward imperceptibly. In fact, you can take the sum total of your life this side of heaven and it constitutes more, no more than a, than a tiny dot at the beginning of that line. <laughs> it's as if our mortal lives are like one drop plucked from the oceans of the world. And yet our habit is to interpret everything as if that one tiny drop explained it all. Can you imagine taking a drop of water out of the ocean 
and using nothing but your five senses to draw conclusions about everything else that exists in the oceans of the world. You'd figure out that it's wet and it's salty, but you wouldn't know a whole heck of a lot more than that. In fact, what you would not know from examining that drop would be a whole lot less than what you would know. And yet many Christians draw all of their conclusions about the meaning of life and about the meaning and purpose of suffering and evil and pain based on the equivalent of one drop out of all the oceans of the world. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul is praying for the saints at Ephesus, the first two things he asks God to do for them are to open the eyes of their hearts so that they will know the hope of his calling and the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He points forward. Because until our eyes are truly open to see things from an eternal point of view, our vision will be constrained to what we see with our eyes. And we will not know true hope, true joy, or true peace. And by the way, we will not know true usefulness for God. In Romans 8.18, Paul makes this contrast between the sufferings now and the glory later. He makes a very similar contrast in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. They're temporary. They're passing away. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Momentary light affliction. (laughs) Now some of you may be thinking, well, if the worst Paul ever experienced was momentary light affliction, then he doesn't know very much about real affliction. And he definitely doesn't know much about my life and the affliction I face. Well, in this exact same book, 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, Paul compared himself with the Jewish false apostles who were boldly masquerading as ambassadors of Christ for personal gain. And here's what he said. I don't have a slide. I just want you to listen to this. He said, are they Hebrews? So am I. This is, if you want to look it up, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-two to 28. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? Me too. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. And by the way, some people die after one round of that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys 
in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, the Jews, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. (laughs) You think you have it bad? And Paul says that every bit of that is momentary light affliction. Now how is it that Paul sees as so non-threatening the kinds of suffering and persecution that would drive many believers to go hide in a corner? It's because he has his eyes on the eternal weight of glory that is far beyond all comparison. He's learned the liberating practice of looking not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. And I want you to notice, he does not say he looks at the things that are seen and at the things that are not seen. He takes his eyes completely off this mortal condition and he fixes them on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He fixes his eyes on the eternal weight of glory that is set before him. And he understands that in order to get to that glory, he must absolutely endure affliction. In verses 19 to 22, he goes on to talk about the eager expectation of all creation. He says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now I'm going to come back to that verse in just a moment. But first, let's look at what he says about what's wrong with God's creation. Verse 20, he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. He's sort of personifying God's physical creation here. And he says, creation has been subjected to futility and slavery to corruption. Now, that constitutes a summary of everything that was messed up by the fall. (laughs) It, It is a reference to the death, violence, injustice, pain, illness, decay, mold, mildew, and everything else that's part of the cursed condition of God's creation. And he said that the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, not of its own choice, but because of him who subjected it by the will of God. See, the cursed condition of the cosmos is not nature's reaction to our sin. Man was not created to serve nature. Nature was created to serve and submit to man 
as the agent of God's dominion. And when Adam sinned, his sin was not fundamentally a sin against nature, it was a sin against the character of God. So God subjected his creation to futility because of us. My brother Kerry reminded me Wednesday morning that in the curse in chapter 3 of Genesis, when God is speaking to Adam, he says, Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Yet even though God subjected creation to futility because of us, he did not do so in futility. God had a purpose in the curse. And this for me was was the big epiphany personally as I was examining this passage this time around. He says, creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's an amazing statement. But look at this. It would have been no sweat for God to make the impact of the curse better than it is. Not so bad as it is. He could easily have set things up so that there were fewer weeds mixed in among the crops, that there was less suffering, Less pain, less illness, injustice, violence, and bloodshed. Because those things are not the final judgment against sin, are they? Hell is the final judgment against sin. Hell is the, is the adequate reflection of God's hatred of sin. So why isn't the curse a little lighter than we see it? Beloved, God had a purpose in the intensity of the curse. He had a purpose in the slavery to corruption and decay and death that we behold all around us at every corner. And that purpose was to instill in His creation a hope, an eager expectation, an anxious longing that is fixed firmly not on anything in this creation, but a hope that is fixed only on the perfect restoration of all things that will come about when God redeems His own people. God left no portion of His creation outside the scope and influence of the curse. You can look all you want and you won't find any Garden of Eden anywhere on this earth. There is no fountain of youth. There is no safe zone. There is no final cure for the diseases that plague mankind. There is no relief from the curse anywhere in God's creation. And the reason those things do not exist this side of heaven is so that nothing in all of creation will find hope anywhere other than in God's redemption of His chosen people. You see, creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption when we are set free from corruption itself. The hope of all creation is our redemption and glorification. And we we saw in verse 17 that our glorification is really just a subset of Christ's glorification, right? We're fellow heirs. 
It's His glory in which we get to participate. Now, I don't want you to miss the connection here in this passage uh, between God's glorification of us as His people and the restoration of His created order. In verse 19, what is it for which creation is anxiously longing? Is it creation's own deliverance? No. It's the revealing of the sons of God. In verse 21, into whose freedom will all of God's creation enter when He finishes His work of redemption? It's into our freedom. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, in the same way that we, as God's redeemed, will enter in to the glory and inheritance of Jesus Christ, all of God's creation will enter into the glory and inheritance that belongs to us through Jesus Christ. Man's sin resulted in God's curse upon all of his creation, and only the full realization of man's redemption will bring about the reversal of that curse. On that day, all of nature will rejoice with unparalleled exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ. His glory will become ours, and our glory will become the glory of all creation. In verses 22 and 23, Paul moves from the eager expectation of creation to our eager expectation. There's a powerful picture in these Two verses, and I, by the way, I know that I used verse 22 in the last passage and in this one. It's a, I see it as a transitional verse between talking about creation and talking about us. But there's a picture here that involves two images, the image of childbirth and the image of adoption. He says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And then he extends that image of childbirth to us. Not only this, but also we ourselves, just like creation, having the first fruits of the Spirit, that down payment of our inheritance, right? Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. He's merging the idea of adoption and inheritance together with the idea of childbirth. And why is he doing that? I think it's in order to drive home the point that on that marvelous day of our final inheritance, the pain is going to end. The agonizing pain of our final, of our mortal and fallen condition is going to end, but not until that day. Indeed, until that day, our suffering most certainly will not end. And that's important. The mothers in this, in this uh, assembly know without a doubt that I don't know much about the pain of childbirth, right? But I was there when my wife gave birth, and I remember uh, having the ball of my fist in the small of her back at her uh, urgent insistence and pushing. And she said, you got to push harder 
So I pushed harder, and she said, you have to push a lot harder than that. And I said, honey, if I push any harder, I'm going to go right through you. That pain was hard for me to watch. (laughs) But I'll never forget my wife's radiant smile when she finally got to hold the child that she had worked so hard to deliver. And from a husband's perspective, i got to tell you, the most amazing thing to me about the process of childbirth is the incredibly stark contrast between the grievous labor, the, the grievous pain of labor, and the unparalleled rejoicing that comes at the end. <laughs> when a mother embraces the child that she's carried for so many months and suffered so greatly, to usher into its first breath. Paul is saying here that that incredible contrast that every mother knows firsthand is an earthly picture for us of the immeasurable contrast between the suffering of this present time and the glory that is to be revealed to us when we stand in the presence of our Savior and Master. Now, most of us have known some mothers who have had to suffer really long, drawn-out labor, right? But think about this. The agonizing labor experienced by God's creation because of your sin and mine has been going on for many thousands of years, and it has not abated, and it's still going on today. The anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for our revealing as sons of God. In the last two verses of this passage, Paul presents a contrast. He's finishing out his discussion of sonship and suffering here with a piercing statement that distinguishes between fake hope and real hope. He says, For in hope we have been saved But hope that is seen, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. I saw a headline in the financial news website, a financial news website on Thursday. It said, private sector job gains offer hope for labor market. (laughs) That means... The labor market might get better if the trend of the last few weeks continues. But nobody knows for sure that that's going to happen. It's more a wish than an expectation. (laughs) That's the kind of hope that often disappoints. If you pay any attention to the stock market, you'll know it's only maybe slightly easier than predicting the weather in Texas. That kind of hope has nothing at all in common with biblical hope. Because the hope God speaks of in His Word is the confident anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promises. Promises made by a God who always, always does what He says He will do. In Romans 8, verses 24 and 25, Paul uses the word hope with two different connotations or angles. (laughs) First, he uses it to refer to the future event, the basis of our hope. 
that final redemption and glorification that we will, we will know in Christ. And then secondly, he uses the word hope to refer to the sense or awareness of what we might call hopefulness, that eager expectation that we have because we know what's set before us. When he says hope that is seen is not hope, he's making a very, very, very important declaration that we must not miss. It's a truth that goes to the very heart of why so many Christians are discouraged and how they can move on beyond that discouragement. Hope that is seen is not hope at all. As long as your attention is on what you can see with your physical eyes, what you can perceive with your senses, you will not know the hope that God is talking about. The hope that is your birthright as a child of God. And please hear me. If you think you can find cause for hope in the things of this earth, then you're buying into an illusion. You're accepting a destructive distraction from the one hope that actually is real. God has no intention of giving you cause for hope in anything to be found in your mortal condition. He has no intention of giving you cause for hope in the quality of your relationships with other human beings. And He has no intention of giving you cause for hope in your control over your situation and circumstance. Because for God to do so, to allow you that kind of hope, that false basis for hope, would be like giving Adam and Eve the keys back into the Garden of Eden to to eat from the tree of life in their fallen mortal condition. And God is not going to do that precisely because He is a gracious and merciful God. God orchestrated the impact of the curse precisely so that you could never find hope in any of those things. And He did so because He is a gracious God. Does that make sense? Hope that is seen is not hope. So let's stop pursuing hope in the things that we see with our fallen eyes and let's look instead at the hope that's seen only with spiritual eyes. A hope that's not from around here. Another thing that struck me in pondering verses 24 and 25 was what Paul says about perseverance and eagerness. He says, if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. (laughs) Now, in, in our earthly experience, perseverance and eagerness tend to be mutually exclusive propositions, right? Eagerness is something that's not sustainable. It's short lived. So it's not part of those experiences that require perseverance. Eagerness is like running a high performance car on nitrous oxide. You hit that nitrous switch and you can only run it that way for a little while, otherwise you're going to burn up the engine. But Paul speaks of the anxious longing of creation. He speaks of creation waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And he speaks of us with perseverance waiting eagerly for that which we do not yet see. 
Guys, there's one kind of eagerness that doesn't burn out. There's an, there is a joyful anticipation that abides. There is an optimism, a hopefulness that does not wax and wane, but that perseveres in the midst of pain and suffering. It is an overflowing cup of provision. It is a table of blessings set up by God for us in the presence of our enemies in the midst of the battle. It is an enduring hope that is God's gift to you as His child. And beloved, it's His gift to you right here and right now. Have you opened up that gift and put your hands on it? Or are you still looking for hope in all the wrong places? I want to end by repeating a question with which I started. How do you fix it when you as a believer know the promises of God and believe that He will do everything that He has promised, but you still don't have joy here and now? I believe Paul has given us the explanation of the problem and the solution to the problem. The problem is we're still seeking a hope that has its roots in the here and now. It's not that we've given no thought to what God has promised. It's not that we never look at at the, the weight of glory that he says is set up for us in heaven. It's that at the same time we are trying to look at the things that are here and find hope in them. And that's not how it works. In fact, because it's so much easier to see what we can see with our physical eyes, that's what we spend most of our time looking at, isn't it? We know what God has promised and we believe that it's true. But we don't live on the basis of that future reality because most of the time... We have our eyes on that which is seen. The result is that we don't truly embrace either our assignment to live out the life of Christ or the suffering that is part and parcel of that assignment, this side of heaven. We're expecting to find peace and security and significance and control, those things that John talked about, in our earthly circumstance or in our relationships with other people. So we do the things that seem to give us control over our well-being while all the time that idea of control is nothing but a grand illusion. And anything that seems to threaten that illusion of control, we readily push aside. And that includes the suffering that belongs to us as disciples when we deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow our master. But the real versions of those things that we seek, hopefulness, joy, peace, purpose, they're not from around here. We're looking for hope in the wrong places and giving lip service to the one hope that actually does not disappoint. And so as a result, we spend a lot of time disappointed. It's not because God has lied. It's because we have our minds and our eyes on a lie, an illusion. We have our eyes off of that which is real.
that which is true. I just thought of Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. You get, a lot of you guys know this. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We have our minds and our eyes in the wrong place and and as such we have rendered ourselves pretty much useless to God for His eternal purposes. That's the problem. Here's the solution. Here's how it works when we truly embrace the only hope that's real. We no longer give any attention to the crummy imitation of well-being that this world has to offer. We stop worrying about our control over our finances, our schedules, or over anything else associated with our earthly circumstance. We stop looking to other people as the source of blessedness and hope because that's putting an assignment on them that they can never meet. We look only to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And the quality of our relationship with Him right now, as well as the rock-solid certainty that we will one day enjoy that relationship without the encumbrance of sin, that becomes to us the only measure of well-being. And that's the real stuff. And here's where it gets eminently practical. With Him as our only hope, our true hope, the anchor of our souls, we therefore readily submit to His agenda. Instead of clinging to an illusion of peace or well-being that can't possibly survive in the midst of suffering, we yield ourselves up to God as living sacrifices and we embrace the suffering that comes with that role. The sufferings of this present time become inconsequential to us in view of the eternal weight of glory that is laid up for us in His presence. We readily embrace the sufferings and persecutions of Christ because we know they are indispensable instruments in the hands of God to impart to us His holiness. And that's our greatest good. We forget about the riches of this world. We commit to laying up our treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so moths and rust and thieves are no longer any threat to us. We we abandon ourselves to the furtherance of the gospel of God, the message concerning his son, which is what Paul said was his mission to bring to us at the beginning of this epistle. And as we do, we find something really neat we find that hope and obedience feed each other. 
Yieldedness to God's purposes strengthens and fortifies our hopefulness. Real hope makes us useful, and real usefulness makes us all the more hopeful. In Hebrews 6, when the writer moves from a stern warning to affirmation of his readers standing as the redeemed of God, he says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And then look at verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. See, he's not saying there's no hope at all until you are fully and absolutely submitted and diligent to carrying out God's work. But he is saying full assurance of hope is obtained through diligent submission to the works that God has prepared for you to do. Specifically in this passage, to the love that we demonstrate toward God by ministering to one another. Real hope makes us useful, and real usefulness makes us all the more hopeful. Here's the end. I just want to boil this down one more time. Here's the essence of our assignment. If you don't already know and believe in God's promises, then first do that. Get to know what God has declared to be true, what he has in store for those who belong to him. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your one and only Savior, if you have not put your faith in Him alone as the sacrifice that God has provided to pay the eternal debt of your sin, then do that first. Because that's where you obtain, that's how you obtain eternal life in the first place. But if you already know and believe, at least the heart, of what God has promised to you concerning your future glorification, with Christ and in Christ, but you struggle to experience the joyful hope that He promises here and now, here's what you must do. First, pray, because the Holy Spirit is the only one who will ever convince you of anything that God says is true. And then as you pray, take your eyes off the things of this world and fix them firmly upon Jesus Christ. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When you find yourself hoping in any way, in your circumstances, or in people, or in any other created thing, stop. Turn your eyes upon the certainty that God has a perfect purpose in the struggles and sufferings of this present time, and upon the certainty that those sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. I've heard it said that Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I believe Paul would say a whole lot of Christians are no earthly good because they're nowhere near heavenly minded enough. Reckon as true that which God says is true. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Proverbs 3, verses 4 and 5. 
And as you count his truth to be true, act in keeping with that truth. Order your days and your activities on the basis of that one true hope. Paul says, walk by the Spirit that you may put to death the deeds of the flesh. Do the things that match up with what God says is real. And in submitting yourself to his reality, you will know it all the more to be real. You will lay hold of the full assurance of hope firm until the end, and you, beloved, will be unshakable. Loving Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you, Father, that that you understand us. You are mindful that we are but dust. You know what we're prone to set our eyes upon. And you've spelled it out for us very simply, very clearly. You call us to take our mind, our eyes and our minds off of the things of this world and to set them on you. Thank you, Lord, that the glory that you've set before us makes all the suffering and pain that we experience here of no consequence. Teach us, Lord, to see with those eternal eyes. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.